Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at Unit 2.3 on the Doctrine of the Fall and Sin. That's a bit out of order compared to what I normally do in class, given that we had to shuffle some things around after my sickness the beginning of the semester. So normally this comes before we talk about atonement, but we're fitting things in here. Wherever it lands, it's an important subject. Oftentimes, as a culture, I think we tend to avoid thinking about evil, or else we make it something in fantasy that we can imagine and enjoy. Even our heroes can have a streak of evil to them in their violence. Think about someone like Deadpool, for example, if you've seen that recent movie or are familiar with the comics. But evil is something that Throughout history, Christians have taken very seriously, and it's a key component of the Christian theological tradition. Christianity is in large part concerned with the question of how God has overcome the problem of evil through his Son, Jesus Christ, and how the Holy Spirit can eliminate evil within us by joining us to the Son so that we can share in the father-son relationship. If you're following along, I'll be going through PowerPoint slide 2.3 today, but I'd also encourage you to consider getting engaged on the discussion forum where we will talk about the problem of evil. I'll be skipping the first several slides on the PowerPoint and going directly to the problem of evil. On slide four, the problem of evil takes on three different forms, but each of these forms is fundamentally concerned with the question, why is there evil if there is a Christian God? The first version of this argument is known as the logical problem of evil. This argument says, Christians claim God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. If he is all-powerful, he is able to eliminate evil. If he is all-knowing, he knows where evil is. If he's all-good, he would want to eliminate evil as much as possible. However, there is still evil in the world, which the logical problem of evil says means there logically cannot be a god. If there is a god, there will be no evil. If there is evil, there cannot be a god. We'll talk in a moment about Christian responses to this problem. A second version of the problem of evil is known as the evidential problem of evil. The evidential problem of evil says, okay, maybe you have a logical reason why an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God would allow for the existence of some kind of evil. But does the evidence in our world match with this defense? Would God allow this type of evil that we're seeing in the world? For example, children starving, or for example, uh, creatures that are designed to inflict harm upon one another. Many atheist philosophers would argue that the evidence does not fit with the hypothesis that God exists. Now, both of these versions of the problem of evil are philosophical challenges to Christianity. And as I told you in the beginning of the semester, I intend to be honest with the evidence as I see it, and share with you not only the arguments in favor of God's existence, but those that are used to question it. 
These are two of the most pointed philosophical arguments against Christianity. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to address them in this class, but I am going to give you some brief Christian responses. I did teach an entire interterm course over the problem of evil. Uh, TJ actually was in that class with me, for example. So if you do want to know more, I'm able to talk with you in much greater detail. Or again, this week's discussion forum, which is an optional opportunity for you to earn participation credit, is on the question of the problem of evil. So I encourage you to weigh in your thoughts there. We'll pause for a moment before addressing the third type of the problem of evil by looking at Christian responses to evil in the logical and evidential form. So on slide four, I give the five theological explanations for the fall. So Christians say that all evil entered the world because of Adam and Eve. That's the fall. Why did God allow this to happen? Five possible explanations. Some Christians point to the possibility that God had to allow evil in order for free will to exist. So the argument goes like this. If humans have free will, then they can choose to do evil things. God could prevent all evil by preventing humans from having choice. However, if he did that, he would eliminate a greater good than the evil he would eliminate. What is that good? Well, for example, if humans don't have free will, they can't love one another. They can't develop different moral virtues, like generosity and helping others who are in pain. So if God were to eliminate free will, the world would actually be worse off than it is now because though the evil of pain and suffering would be gone, the great good of love would also be eliminated. Therefore, God justly allows evil to continue to exist. The second theological explanation for the fall is that evil is absurd. Sometimes this feels like a great defense to me. Sometimes it feels crazy. But the argument goes something like this. So, if God created everything that exists, then everything that exists must be good. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. God creates everything and he says it is all very good. Well, evil is obviously not good. Therefore, it must not be created by God, and in fact, it must not actually exist. Evil must be an absence of existence. But it's absurd to ask someone to explain a lack of existence. So if I asked you, why don't three-headed cats exist? It's a ridiculous question. There's not really a good answer for that. They just don't. Similarly for evil, if we're seeking an explanation there, and God is the explanation of everything, we're making a mistake. Because God is not the explanation of evil. He is all good. A third defense against the logical and evidential problem of evil is the defense based on human knowledge. This argument says because humans are finite, that they cannot possibly know all things. So inevitably, they're going to accidentally do evil things, and once that pattern starts, the world gradually becomes a worse and worse place. 
there's no way that God could create finite beings and have a world without evil, this argument says. A fourth defense is a fairly extreme theological approach. It says that God caused the fall. He wanted Adam and Eve to sin, and he wanted there to be death and suffering, so that he could then display his power and glory by defeating death and suffering. This is all for the glory of God, this approach says. Fifth and finally, a common defense appeals to what's known as soul-making. This argument says that after going through pain and suffering, we are actually better off in terms of our morality, in terms of our strength, in terms of our wisdom, than we would have been had we never suffered. So if God's goal was to make the best possible creatures, the only way for those creatures to exist is to pass through a time of suffering which is experienced in this bodily life before the resurrection. In each of these five arguments, Christians are trying to defend the existence of an omniscient, omnipotent, all-good God. The details of these arguments are beyond my ability to address in the limited time that we have, but again, that's what the discussion forum is about, or feel free to send me an email. I want to add an important clarification here, though, by returning to the third version of the problem of evil, known as the existential problem of evil. This is a very different version of the problem than the logical problem and the evidential problem. The existential problem of evil wrestles with the experience of suffering that you may have in your personal life. I've had a number of personal experiences of suffering, but the existential problem of evil was most forcefully present to me when I actually witnessed the suffering of someone else while serving as a hospital chaplain. As a hospital chaplain, I was the one who was called in to comfort grieving families and refer them to support services if they received bad medical news or if they had a relative who passed away. I was also called in for most trauma incidents where an ambulance would bring somebody from a particularly intense medical emergency. So I was on call that weekend and was called in and saw a young preteen girl who had been hit by a car crossing the street. And I watched her die on the medical table. And then I went in with the doctor as the doctor informed her father, who was the first to arrive at the hospital, that she had passed away. And then I sat with her father and tried to comfort him as he cried and asked why God had allowed this to happen. And I remained with him and watched as he shared the news with his wife when she arrived at the hospital and with his son. And I tried to comfort each of them as they cried and they mourned. And that night, after spending hours with that family in various means, I found myself struggling to continue to believe after what I had seen. That is my experience of the existential problem of evil. And I'm certain that some of you have experienced something similar. It's important to know that this is a very different question than the logical problem of evil. I can give you some very complex philosophical arguments about why free will justifies God allowing evil, but those do absolutely nothing to help you 
in the midst of suffering. There, I believe Christianity has a different set of resources. There are a unique set of spiritual perspectives that Christianity has that other religions, to my knowledge, lack. I'm going to walk you through those pretty quickly. The first is that the Christian Bible allows you to express your emotions, whatever they are, to God. So in the Old Testament, for example, we have psalms, which were meant to be sung in the worship services of ancient Israel, where the Israelites are calling out in anger to God, saying, Why have you forsaken us, God? Why are you letting this suffering happen? There are times when the Israelites pray for their enemies' children's heads to be smashed on rocks. That's a pretty evil prayer. In the book of Lamentations, there's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to asking God why he's allowed suffering to happen. You see, some religions don't allow you to question God because they believe that that is too irreverent. But the Bible sets as an example a pattern of asking God tough questions and of sharing whatever emotions you have with God. I think that practice of lament is a strength that Christianity has. Second, when we look at Jesus Christ, we have God who has joined us in suffering. When he took on flesh, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on a nature in the hypostatic union that could suffer just as we suffer. That means that our God is not unaware of the struggles that we have on earth. He experienced the loss of friends and family. He was tortured. He died a terrible death. No doubt he went through various sicknesses in his life. He was betrayed by friends. In all of these things, he has shared our experience. There are other religions that believe that God or the divine is actually unable to experience any suffering of this sort. Through the Incarnation, Christianity says otherwise. However, there's an additional piece of good news. Though the Son has suffered in his human nature, he is also victorious in his divine. Death and pain and suffering cannot conquer the divine nature, which means, as we saw in our Florovsky reading, that Jesus instead conquered death. And this provides an opportunity for us as Christians to have hope even in the face of suffering and evil and death. Now, I can't tell you that it was easy for me to reach a place of hope after witnessing what I did, and I can only imagine it was far harder for the family of that young girl. And I still think about them regularly whenever I teach this class, whenever I see suffering. Honestly, a lot of times, whenever I have extended time alone, this incident will come to mind. But God has graciously given me a way to spiritually cope with that suffering. So, three versions of the problem of evil and some Christian responses there. I encourage you to consider and debate whether or not those responses are sufficient. For time purposes, we're going to cut a few doctrines from our PowerPoint, but I do want to move on to one doctrine that is quite important, and that is the doctrine of original sin. Original sin says that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, which was the first sin, you and I sin today and we face death. 
So it's not that Adam and Eve just happened to sin, and that's a story for us to hear, but it has no bearing on our life today. The doctrine of original sin said that as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, it was necessary that you and I would sin as well, just as it was necessary that you and I would die. And this is most clearly taught in the Bible in Romans 5. So if you'd like to read Romans 5, you can get a sense of where this comes from in the Bible. And note that this is immediately followed by Romans 6, which I recommended you consider in terms of the doctrine of union, where Paul lays out our salvation and the solution to sin that's available to us in Christ. So the Bible talks about original sin, but if you look at Romans 5, you'll notice that it's a bit confusing to understand what's going on. What does it actually mean that I'm affected by the sin of Adam? This is a fairly complex theological question. There are lots of different theories about how Adam's sin affects mine. And these theories are even more complicated by modern scientific discoveries that bring into question exactly how it is that we might be connected to one another and connected to any original pair of humans. That debate is something beyond the scope of our uh, consideration in this class today, but I do want to name it so that you know I'm only touching the tip of the iceberg. I do want to give you four different interpretations of original sin. Well, really three interpretations and a rejection of original sin. The first perspective, and this is on slide seven, uh, and you'll need to know this for the exam. The first perspective is that of Pelagianism. Remember, we already encountered Pelagius when he argued that humans are able to do the good simply by exerting their will. If we try hard enough, we can be without sin. Well, logically, given that, we shouldn't be surprised to find that Pelagius rejects original sin. We don't have to sin because Adam and Eve sinned. The only thing that Adam and Eve are is a bad example for us. Again, this was condemned uh, by an early Christian council, and I know of no Christian group today that completely rejects the idea of original sin, uh, at least as a large denomination. Second, we have the example of Arminianism. Arminianism understands uh, original sin in terms of original pollution. I'll define that in a moment, but first let me back up. If you're trying to understand original sin, there are basically two questions here. What is original sin's effect? So how does it impact me? And why does this effect happen? So when it comes to what is the effect, Arminianism explains the effect in terms of original pollution. Our nature is polluted because of Adam. You can imagine polluting like pouring toxic sludge in a river. The river continues to flow, but downriver, the water remains polluted. Similarly, this theory says that Adam and Eve sinned and they messed up their nature. So the effect on me is that my nature is polluted too. I will naturally desire sinful things. We could then ask, well, why is it that my nature is polluted? Arminians answer by pointing to natural headship. So natural headship says that Adam and Eve were our head, metaphorically speaking. They are that from which the rest of the body grows out. 
So we have received our nature from our parents. Our parents receive their nature from their grandparents, and so forth and so on, all the way back to the original Adam and Eve. Now, sin is not a gene. It's not a set of DNA that we can identify and just splice out and cure sin. But we can imagine it metaphorically as something similar on this account. Just like we receive DNA from our parents that traces back generations, we've received something at a spiritual level that ensures that we are stained by sin and inevitably sin and die. That's the Arminian view. Not all Christians hold to this exact view. For example, Calvinists, they, they accept original pollution, but they tend to be more concerned with something called original guilt. On this view, what is the effect of Adam's sin? Well, not only is our nature polluted so that it naturally desires to do evil, but we are viewed as guilty from birth. Because Adam and Eve sinned, God views us as sinners. Just like Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, it's a status given to us that we haven't earned, Adam's guilt is imputed to us. Well, why is that the case? Calvinists appeal to what's known as federal headship. Now, you might recognize this word federal from the federal government. That word comes from a Latin word fotus that means covenant. The federal government is the government that has come together around the covenant or the constitution. So federal headship means that Christ is our head because of a covenant. In this case, Calvinists tend to read Genesis 1 and 2 as having an implicit or implied covenant. A covenant involves an agreement between two parties. In this case, God says, if you obey me, you will live forever. If you disobey me, then you will die. Adam is our representative, so since he disobeyed, we all face the consequences of death and guilt. Now, you may be thinking, is that fair? A Calvinist would respond here perhaps by pointing to analogies. Now, let's suppose that while class is out, Anthony has decided to fill his time uh, with sneaking overseas and detonating bombs in, I don't know, let's say Spain. Why not? Now, Spanish authorities catch him. If it turns out that this is just a rogue incident, he'll go to prison as a terrorist. However, if it turns out that he is the representative of the United States government, then Spain, and probably following it, much of Europe, might declare war on our country as a whole. Now, Anthony's the one that set off the bomb. But despite that, Nathan would still be subject to attacks, perhaps, from Spain and various other European nations in retaliation for the bombing that Anthony carried out. That's the case because Anthony was our representative. He was a representative of our government. In the same way, Adam and Eve are thought to be our representatives in such a way that what they did still results in consequences for us. So, federal headship and original guilt. A third and final perspective on original sin, plus that fourth of Pelagianism that denies it, a third perspective is that of Karl Rahner. We might call this the New Roman Catholic Perspective. 
Rahner is one of the most influential Catholic theologians of the 20th century. And he describes original sin in the language of co-determination by others' guilt. That's a fancy phrase. You don't necessarily need to know it, but you should know how to summarize the main idea. Rahner says, once other people sin, if you're born into the world, your choices are always going to be influenced by the sins of others. The example I always give here is that of clothing. And I feel like maybe I've already mentioned this in a different context in this class. Things are a bit unclear since we've been doing podcasts and I've been shuffling things around. But if we think about our clothing, if we were all gathered together in Kelsey, like I wish we were now, I could guarantee that somebody in that room has accidentally bought clothing and is wearing clothing made in a sweatshop. The supply chain is so complicated that we don't know where our clothing comes from. Now I bet most of us, if not all of us, would be opposed to buying clothing from a sweatshop where people are practically enslaved and paid hardly anything to work 16, 18 hours a day in unsafe working conditions. And yet here you are. You are complicit in buying clothing that reinforces that. Unless you make all of your clothing yourself using materials that you made yourself, probably you are contributing to some evil in the economy. That's fundamentally what Rahner's talking about. Once you sin, things expand on a social level until things are so complicated that whatever choices you make, you inevitably are a part of sin. So that might be what original sin means. Adam and Eve sinned, and now no matter what we do, we will be contributing to systems of sin as well. These are three of many more possible explanations of original sin. But taken together, they are intended to show possible ways that Adam and Eve's sin affects us today. And they show the complicated problem that Christianity is trying to overcome through the solution of the atonement in Christ. That's the doctrine of sin in a nutshell. It's a little bit heavier on intense concepts, so I apologize this podcast is three or four minutes longer than normal. But I think the ideas are important, and I've found them some of the more challenging ideas to struggle with as a Christian. I look forward to discussing some of them with you on the discussion forum, but until then, I hope you all are well.